Global consumerism is a $40 trillion a year phenomenon, which makes it the largest, most predictable investment opportunity on the planet. Who are the prime beneficiaries of global consumption trends? Mega brands. Welcome to the Mega Brands podcast series. I'm your host, Eric Clark. In this podcast, we explore mega trends through the lens of a global investor with the ultimate goal of identifying the most relevant, most innovative brands that are best positioned to become what I call mega brands. These are the brands that are customer obsessed, have a corporate culture of innovation and self-disruption, create products and services that are in high demand, that exhibit strong brand love from customers, are serving a global opportunity and appeal to multiple demographic groups. What's the reward for a company that meets these criteria? More revenue, more cash flow, higher market share, and the potential to reach the trillion dollar club. Please enjoy our next episode of Mega Brands. Eric Clark is the portfolio manager for the Rational Dynamic Brands Fund in conjunction with his partners at AccuVest Global Advisors. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of AccuVest Global Advisors or Rational Funds. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of the Brands Fund or AccuVest may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hey, it's Eric Clark from Mega Brands, and I'm back with a good friend and a frequent guest, Sean Avery, CIO and founder of Avery & Company in Miami. Uh, Avery.xyz is the website. Uh, Sean's the CIO and the founder, and um, always love talking to you, man. We, we obviously have plenty of things to talk about, plenty of things probably to rant about. <laughs> um, so how you doing? Happy summer. Good. Good. It, it's never been better to talk about the markets, but everything's good. How are you? <laughs> uh, I'm doing all right. I just got back from Tao, as you can see with my, uh, my, my background here. This is one of my favorite mountain bike rides called Stanford Rock. And I got a chance to, to get up there and do some riding after my little COVID experience. And I have to say my lungs uh, were not in love with the altitude plus you know, the, the, uh, an hour and a half climb, but the views made it all special. <laughs> I mean, it, it, at the very least, it looked like you didn't have internet connection, which is probably a good thing during these times. Very good thing. A very good thing. How's hazy, hot and humid Miami. It's so hot. Um, <laughs> you know, I think, uh, the older you get, the more you realize how hot it is. You also realize how much you have to water your grass, which is, uh, not something I even thought about. I was condo living for a long time. And then you know, I think uh, the trends you're seeing in housing, I was one of those uh, data points. So I bought, bought a home and now I'm watering my grass uh, all the time to make sure it doesn't uh, look like the bark on the trees behind you. But do you have people running around your neighborhood saying, don't water your grass because there's a water shortage? <laughs> That's what we have here. <laughs> not yet, not yet. Good old California. It's coming. <laughs> it sounds like it's coming, but if, uh, if it keeps this way. So, so let's talk, let's talk. I mean, you know, there's so many things to talk about, but you know, right before we hit the record button, you know, we talked about, you know, macro over micro. It, it, it's so, it, what, tell me that comment again. You said, you know, if we started, what was it in January? And if I told you that my companies were going to do A, B and C, sure. And we would have seen the performance of those companies relative to the actual business performance. 
I would, I would be completely shocked or something like that. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's one of the harder things to, you know, investing. We all know if you're, I've been doing it for over a decade now and, you know, um, uh, there's, uh, plenty of, you know, I'm a student of, uh, history as well. And, you know, it's, it's very hard to forecast what's going to happen specifically in six months and a year. Um, there's, there's data around it, but you know, you never know what is the actual causation for some of that data, but longer term, we know what ha- tends to happen, but you know, my point was, you know, on January 1st, if you told me you had a group of portfolios, i.e. the group of portfolios we own in our portfolio, and uh, they're growing revenues by 30%, generating cash flow, growing earnings, providing guidance that's fairly healthy, um, trading at valuation levels that were incredibly attractive then. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, in, in many ways, you know, some of them are trading at multiples of cash. But if you told me that they were growing at 30% and that type of earnings power and continuing to invest, come June 30th, you gave me that crystal ball, I wouldn't have done anything differently. And, and that's kind of the, that's, a, that's the difference between, you know, long-term thinking, short-term thinking, trying to time versus not trying to time, um, not knowing what's going to happen, you know, over, over a time period, um, but just trying to own good businesses and, and uh, get through the tougher times uh, that I think uh, many people are going through today. But again, there's always a, uh, uh, a sun that comes up on the other side. So uh, if you own good businesses, I think uh, we'll all just be fine. Yeah, I mean, I just I just uh, recorded my commentary for Q2, and you know, I I kind of said that like, in the end, the company, the business, the competitive moat, the revenue, the cash flow, the margins, all of those things eventually matter. Right now, nobody cares about anything. I ha- hmm. had a conversation with one of our clients the other day, an advisor, and I said, you know, largely from an operating perspective, all these companies are doing pretty well. I mean, it's almost like it's almost like you want every one of your companies to just lower the bar, just do it. So, so the, the guidance can now meet the, 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 the backward looking returns of the stock. So they can finally say, okay, you know, the market got well in advance of what was likely going to happen with this inflation, with all this QT from the fed. And, you know, the stock's down 40 plus percent and now they've lowered the bar down to their ankles. So, they're, you know, over the next year, for the most part, they can tiptoe over the estimates. Let's just get it over with at this point. It's like the slowest bleed I've ever seen. <laughs> that is it. I mean, even analysts uh, a couple of weeks ago, the Adobe earnings call, which was actually a good earnings call, you know, and this is a bellwether in, in kind of software and content and creation and advertising, whatever you, you want to call it. But uh, the analysts on the call were calling or were, were saying, hey, you know, your stock's down like 45, 50%. Why don't you just uh, lower your guidance for the year. I mean, the market's giving you a pass here. So, so do it. And, you know, he just said, this is what we're seeing um, right. in our business and why deviate from that. So you have to applaud the, you know, the team there for, for not deviating from uh, how they typically forecast. Um, but yeah, you're right that we live in a world where people want that beat and raise mentality and even like good, uh, not good enough beats uh, are essentially smacked down uh, in this world. So yeah, maybe you have to go through a cycle of uh, of guidance cuts. Um, we're just not necessarily seeing that yet. So uh, it, it's like this bifurcation between what's happening in the markets and what's happening at business. I know the market's forward looking, um, but we're at a the, the companies are in pretty good place relative to you know the the damage that's been done. The 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 macro guys, you know what what was a Ray Dalio? Is one of his funds is up like thirty percent or something like that? I mean. Obviously, you know, macro is driving micro and those guys are just, you know, it's like, a, you know, I, I view macro like a chessboard, you know, guys are just like, well, if that happens, 
then this happens, this happens, this happens. And if that happens, these things happen. And here's how we're going to play all that stuff. And we're just going to sit back and we're going to wait for that, that, that if then thing to happen. And, you know, that's not, I mean, I'm sure both of our teams play some of that game, particularly on the, you know, as a consumer investor, when I started to see prices rise, I thought, okay, eventually people are going to start changing behavior. At first we start just, we just bitch and moan about prices, but we keep doing what we were doing with the brands and the, and the, and the industries that we're doing it with. And then eventually, if we really start to feel the pinch, we start playing the this versus that game. And I think, I think we're doing that now with, with consumption, you know, people are choosing to go to more to Trader Joe's or more to Costco and, and stay away from, you know, the bougie market that where you spend 30 or 40% more, you know, things like that. And then obviously we got a big inventory problem in my space with, with some of the retailers. So, you know, what's your view on the inflation that we have and, and when you, do you think, I mean, based on the tweet that you made the other day, I, I think you think, and maybe consensus is that we're, we're probably at that peak inflation, which is great. It, what does that mean though? We're not going back to two. So we might be at peak and we might have a rate of change benefit tailwind. And is that enough? And where does, where does inflation maybe, you know, if we, if we look out two years, where is inflation or even one year, where's inflation? Yeah. I mean, obviously it's, it's generally tough to call some of this stuff. Um, but look, you have the two, the two main measures, right. Which is headline and, and core and, and core now for four months in a row is, has decelerated on a year over year basis. Um, and if you look at like the CPI now, um, you're, you, you can kind of look out to see what July is potentially going to look like. And that is something like a 0.3, 0.4% uh, month over month change, which you annualize that, right. To try to get some form of a annual number uh, looking forward. And you know, that comes out to three, four, four and a half percent. Um, and on the, Top line, which is the headline number, you know, a lot of that's being driven by commodities. And uh, one thing that is important to note is that a lot of this, um, these data points that come out, specifically on the macro side, are, are super delayed. So if you have access to any sort of real time data, whether it's, you know, foot traffic trends to this, whether it's uh, rental prices on some of the, the listing sites like Zumper and, and uh, the airfares and Hopper and, and some other like data sources that you can really track what's happening in real time, many of these things are in, in declines. Um, and that will show up in future, uh, CPI prints. Some of them are going from actually inflationary to deflationary. So look at like used cars, you know, heading into the year, we, we kept putting out this chart on, on, um, uh, uh, the search for used cars on Google, you know, and, and that was making, uh, near decade lows, uh, in terms of the demand there. And sure enough, uh, this year, what you're seeing from like things like the Mannheim index, is a real deceleration and one of the faster decelerations in used car prices. Now, again, that doesn't show up in CPI with, uh, without like a, a three, four month lag. Um, so the peak price was February, March, and that's continuing to show in, in the numbers as it decelerates through CPI. Um, so again, you take that, you take some other indicators uh, as well. I just had a conversation with Fredos around uh, logistics uh, and you, you know the, we peaked out at $20,000 for a 40 foot container today at 7,000 and continuing to decline. So 50% down commodity prices, we all know. I mean, I think oil right now is at low 90s, a, a barrel and, and gas is at 460. You know, I can, we can go back and forth of refining and, and what that means for 
uh, the future of gas prices. But generally speaking, I think we're um, from a data perspective past that peak of very much accelerating inflation, which, you know, it's that, that change of tune that I think um, uh, is important to, to be aware of. Yeah, I mean, I, my, my, my working thesis with my team has been inflation peaks. You get that one data point, that one month, maybe it's next month, I suspect it will be, where you have a slight deceleration and you can point to all of the, all of the inputs and, and kind of extrapolate out. That, that'll lead to another deceleration. When that, when that happens, I do think there's a pretty you know, ripping rally in equity prices. And, and, but, but then I think people are going to really focus on the, that, that, that eventuality or that notion that inflation just isn't going to go down to levels that we're used to, you know, for, for at least the next 12 months, we still got the wage issue. We still have the rent issue. And and then as an allocator, you got to decide, okay, in a four, let's say we go to four. I, I, I last I haven't looked at it for for a month or so. I can't remember what the the two or three year inflation forwards look like, but I think it was somewhere around the four percent. So okay, let's say we have inflation at four for the next couple of years. It's it's structurally higher than we're used to. Now, what kinds of businesses work in that environment? To me, that's that's when people start really focusing on the business again rather than the macro. Because then you can truly say, okay, and, and I'm certainly going to be talking my book here, but, you know, who can grow over inflation and, and has the good balance sheet and has the pricing power and all those things. And so I, I think at that point, all of us that do active stock picking and research will start to feel better about the environment for picking stocks because it's actually going to matter what the business does. Whether I'm right or wrong, only time will tell, but that's kind of how we're operating. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I guess the, the, the framework is really around like what can, could work in an environment like this. You know, again, it comes down to uh, being able to own the environment um, in, in a sense, no matter the environment. What we've seen throughout history is, right, is, is many of the best companies, eventual best companies are the ones that are able to invest in the environment. And that comes because, you know, there's structural demand for their products. Uh, there's also uh, a economic model that is somewhat sustainable. And a management team that can execute, right? Those are like the three pillars of like what a the framework of a business, a good business should look like. And really the ones that are going to drive you through this. I mean, we just made a piece, not out yet, but it's, you know, in 1980 was peak inflation back then. And guess the company that was just thorough, like a thoroughbred investing through this was Home Depot with 100 stores. Um, and rates were at 15% you know, you would be up like 30, 40,000% if you were, you were investing through a 16% inflation cycle um, in this small little innovator that was taking the small box to big box retail. And uh, ironically, it was an innovator. It was kind of cool to go through the history of uh, Home Depot at that age and just see what they were doing, how they were thinking differently about outcomes. Um, and, you know, that's like a pretty good example of, you know, there was structural demand for this big box type of retail. They sold goods. Uh, in an inflationary environment, um, and they were investing in that environment. Again, you fast forward, they uh, are exactly who they are today, and then continue to pile on more uh, adjacent opportunities, whether it's the pro business, again, away from Home Depot per se, but it's really around the concept that, you know, you have to find these businesses that can invest through these cycles. Um, And that is due to 
You know, they may have some structural differences from a business perspective. Is it a subscription model where that subscription or three-year term length? That, get, that buys you some time. You know, you can see through a cycle. If your customers have, you know, 95% retention rates and three-year contracts and you're mission critical to their organization and, you know, you have 80% gross margins or even 40% gross margins, it doesn't really margin or matter there. Um, and in an environment where your uh, peers are pulling back, you're leaning in, maybe not aggressive as aggressively as like a boom cycle, um, but more aggressively than your peers, which you're capturing market share. So like, these are like the key elements I think you want to look for in these environments. And they come in all shapes and sizes. They could be physical companies and digital companies and software versus subscription versus not. Um, I think those are, are key. Um, maybe the flip side is what kind of maybe you don't want to touch. Um, and I think, again, it's, it's kind of the, the opposite of that, right? Which are, you know, what is not structural in nature? I've been talking about uh, some, of the, some of the energy companies. There's obviously interesting uh, energy companies, but, you know, some of the, the, the upcycle in energy prices led to kind of lifted all boats. Um, and there's going to be continued pressure in some commodities, uh, upward pressure, and that'll continue to be margin accretive for some of these businesses that are providing value. Um, you know, some of the ones that you don't want to potentially is, is highly transactional. That's, that's very, um, kind of like mid market, right. Uh, in terms of who they're selling to, I think that's maybe where you want to stay away from is right in the middle. And again, staying away from meaning almost like a trader's mentality is trying to stay away from it for now. Uh, if you're, if you're really just trying to pick the best, uh, the best, but again, leaders with high margins, sustainable business models. I think those are like the key elements that you, you should be looking for. It doesn't really matter uh, the industry or, or, or sec sector. Yeah. How many, how many names do, are you carrying now typically? Yeah. So 13, 14. Okay. Yeah. So we have 14 rough, which is actually on the high end of, of what we own. Um, you know, for a while there we were at eight, right. Because we didn't see as many opportunities. There's always opportunities and, and obviously the markets will have and flows. Um, and today it's, yeah, it's around that 13, 14 number. Um, and it's really around, you know, spreading your, your opportunities around more companies, because I think, uh, and I think it makes rational sense is, you know, when markets are elevated in theory, there should be more or less opportunities. Um, and when markets are depressed in theory, there should be more opportunities. Um, so it's kind of that, uh, spreading out, uh, into companies, you know, really, really well. Uh, I think that's key in these environments is just really knowing your companies, uh, incredibly well. Um, so that you can calmly uh, watch some of the uh, the fireworks that go off in the markets uh, every day. It, do you have any newer names that that you've put in over the last six months or so that you can or want to talk about? Uh, otherwise, we can we can just move on to a, a couple of other topics we talked about. Yeah, we, I mean, we've talked. Um, uh, we, we've been outspoken about some of those, which is uh, Duolingo, uh, which is an investment of ours. Um, you know, we talk about inflation. Here's you have a, a cash flow positive business that, you know, has 40 million uh, users on its platform, roughly 6.5 are, are paid now. So subscribers, that's the bulk of their revenue is this subscription business. Um, it's, but it's free. It's free to start, right? So an inflationary environment where you're trying to learn, you know, you're probably going to trade down from some of the Coursera stuff um, and move into like the Duolingos of the world. Uh, I think that's uh, one uh, avenue that we think is interesting, strong balance sheet, strong economics, doesn't really use marketing to, to drive to drive business. It's really organic and referral based. They're about to launch a, a math product. We're, we're testing the beta here. And, you know, that's a pretty good example of 
the environment around us is is uh, spooky to some. Yet here's Duolingo uh, opening up a food truck, uh, taco food truck at their headquarter, and and uh, launching a math product um, in the thick of kind of what people would say is uh, uh, potentially weaker uh, economic activity down the road. Um, so that's one. I mean, there's there's others. Yeah. Where well, are they? But... Where, is that a that's not a U.S. company, is it? Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, it so okay. Pittsburgh. So they're based in Pittsburgh. Uh, uh, Luis, who is the uh, uh, founder and CEO from Guatemala, um, so that's probably why uh, there's, you know, he's, he's pretty out there in terms of uh, being in the media uh, from time to time. So, um, you know, he has a pretty strong track record of uh, building business. He's, he founded uh, Recaptcha and sold that, um, that little annoying thing we all always click uh, before you're logging into a website. Um, yep, that was him. And uh, now he's uh, Duolingo. So it's a pretty interesting story, to say the least, uh, that we think uh, not too many people. There's a lot of brand awareness, but I don't think there's a lot of a investor awareness. Okay. Yeah. I, I, in December, when we do our, our updated brand analysis, and always try, I always try to pull in, you know, at least 10% of, you know, kind of emerging brands. So I'll, I'll get to know that one a little bit. So I'll put that one on yeah. my list. Definitely um, a brand. You know, we, yeah, we, we talked about buy now, pay later. So <laughs> now that we've seen the meteoric rise and the meteoric crash, I, I mean, do you have any thoughts? I, I was un, I was amazed at, first off, I was surprised that Klarna never went public and monetized. And I was even more amazed at the down round that they experienced from what was it? 40 something billion in, in, in valuation down to like six or seven. I mean, yeah. what a painful, painful down round that was. So talk to me about the buy now. I mean, as a consumer, I've used it a few times. I, I don't know that I'm the the ultimate demographic, but I've used it a few times. It kind of takes the edge off and makes you feel good about buying something that, you know, like a guilty pleasure, Buck Mason for me, uh, a, a men's retailer, online retailer. I've done it, you know, when, when it pisses my wife off and I'm just like, hey, I just <laughs> buy now, pay later. I got four shirts at these... They're the best shirts in, you know, for, for men, at least for my body type. Cause they, they cut off right at the, at the waist. Good shirts. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't have the dad bod yet. So I don't want the dad bod shirt from Under Armour. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. I mean, buy now, pay the leaders, uh, an interesting space. I think there's a, a misunderstanding of the space, which is, uh, really two things is, is one that the average customer on there is actually paying these things with a debit card. Um, that's number one. And, and depending on the company, right? 80, 90% of all those transactions are with debit cards. And some of them, depending on how, you know, some of the businesses is, you know, it's kind of, they allow you to be part of the ecosystem as long as you're paying. The second you don't, you're out, right? So it's kind of like a, a let you in mentality uh, and then cut you off immediately once you stop paying. And literally 98% of many of these companies, you know, these, these individuals have their debit card uh, connected to their whatever, whether it's a firm or, or Klarna or Afterpay uh, connected to these. So that's ultimately kind of the big misconception that I think a lot of people have. Also, these are kind of very short credit cycles. So every 30 days, they're totally refreshing um, the pool of creditors in a sense. Um, in the pie. And I think that's also an important concept, which is a lot of these loans that are out there, whether it's, uh, um, you know, credit cards and such, uh, the, there's much longer cycles that people hold the balance for a long time. 
the second you have a balance, in theory, you're no longer part of the ecosystem. And so that's kind of this defensive mechanism. Now, obviously, rates rising puts pressure as they rise incrementally. But each time, every 30 days, 90 days, they're refreshing that cycle at a new base. Um, so that's an interesting uh, concept as well that I don't think a lot of people use. Lastly, is who, who's paying for this? Most of the time, depending on the platform, you know, something like an Afterpay, the actual payer to let's say someone like Afterpay is the merchants. So they're seeing massive uplift in the amount of traction they're getting because you know when you shop on uh, for Afterpay, for example, like you're in the Afterpay app and they have a set of merchants that are on there. And the merchants know that these are buyers that are ready to buy. Um, and they have a certain set budget. So if you go on there, they'll run a, not credit checks or anything, they'll run a, an analysis on you, right? Based on where you live, uh, your zip code, and um, some of the history around you, potentially your email and what kind of, uh, all the little small little uh, uh, alternative data that they can capture around you and then create a profile and then offer you $500, right? You have your, your first payment's $500. You pay that, you, you can come back. Um, and these ecosystems of merchants and buyers uh, is really advantageous to the, to the merchants because again, you have buyers ready to buy that have a credit already there saying, hey, you can purchase X amount of dollars. So, you know, there's this interesting dynamic that or marketplace that effect that's happening that I think is highly valuable and the merchant's paying for it. It's not even... Uh, it's not even coming from the consumer in most cases. Again, there's some there's some uh, uh, elements around that as well, where you know some have um, APRs like a like in a firm, uh, for example. Um, and like if you don't pay, sometimes that you can have a balance, right? It's just depending on the different ecosystems, and they're evolving all the time. Um, but again, I think there is this misconception thinking that it's the worst people come on there, and um, so there, it's this horrible pool of of, uh, of, um, kind of users. Yeah. yeah. Like subprime users. And then on top of that, it, I don't think people understand it's actually the merchants that are paying for the, to be on this platform. It's not really the users. Once they're, once they don't pay, they're done. I mean, have you, I, do you own square? I know you did it one yeah. time. Okay, block. So, Come on. It's block. Uh, yeah. Block. I don't know. How's that working out? <laughs> well, we've, we so yeah, we've, we've been serious. I'm serious. Just saying from the change right at the, you know, uh, right at the peak of enthusiasm. <laughs> for sure. No. So we, uh, that's something that again, we bought here in the last uh, four months. So we, okay. we owned it for a long time. Um, and then I think we had conversations back, uh, maybe a year and a half ago where we ended up selling it, uh, maybe a year and a half ago. Uh, and then it, obviously went down a lot. Um, and we got back into it. Uh, and then it's still down from where we bought it, but, uh, it's definitely not where it was at all, uh, in terms of purchase price. So, um, so do, we, do we still think like, the, yeah. Do you like, is there something about if you just don't zero in on the, the buy now pay later, is there something that you really like about afterpay versus the affirms and the Klarna's and the PayPal's or, or is, you know, is your thesis much more comprehensive and, and Afterpay is, you know, doesn't negate your thesis or is there something really positive about Afterpay and the way they do it versus others? Um, yeah, so it's the clean model for the most part. So it's very clean. The merchant pays uh, like three and a half, four percent 4% um, of a transaction. So that's number one. Um, so it's very clean to understand it. Um, they have a pretty large merchant base, one of the larger ones. They have geographies that some don't have in terms of capture, right? I think uh, like Australians and, and part of Europe. Um, affirms 
uh, big in the U.S. So if you, if you think of like um, synergies for someone like a block, so like there's there's the the companies specifically, and then there's like what works better for someone like a a block, um, which is you know blocks trying to move international. You know, Cash App is the number one finance app in the U.S but doesn't have really that big of an international presence. So here you have one of the bigger uh, financial apps internationally. Uh, you combine that capabilities and the UI experience that uh, Cash App is known for and the ease of use. I mean, you think five years from now, here you have this massive merchant base that is moving into Cash App um, in terms of a marketplace type of uh, model that they discussed on their investor day. And then on the other side, you, again, you have a lot of the merchants that Square already has the actual Square point of sale um, that uh, offers kind of uh, the pay now, buy now, pay later buttons uh, within all of those merchants as well. Um, so the, the synergies made a lot of sense for those two relative to, let's say, like in a firm. Klarna was a big juggernaut, right? Like it's not something you were going to swallow at the time. Klarna has always been, you know, there's a lot more going on at Klarna than just uh, uh, a simplified product. I think Cash App or Block or Square, um, all their products in general tend to be very simple. Um, and so I think that resonates uh, fairly well uh, with the consumer, um, which again, putting it all together, I think it was the better synergy. And it, it's hard to get 14, 17 million merchants on a platform. They were trying to do some of these things. You know, they had their installments the ca inside Cash App. It's just, you know, best in breed tends to work until the, uh, the economics are just better when you, when you join up with a large organization that already has merchants and customers. I'm surprised, and I and I said this about Shopify maybe a year or two ago. You know, they have all these merchants captive. Why not spend some marketing dollars and have that be an Amazon competitor too? I mean, you 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 already have a site where you can go, and there's a gazillion uh, you know merchants on there with lots of opportunities. Why not spend some marketing to also drive the DTC crowd into there and use your payment platform? I don't know if they've done that in a big way or if you think that's that's a, something that they might ever do, but it just seems like that's just another avenue when you already have this site with these capabilities attached to those merchants around the world. Why not just get build build a new consumer brand that that in some way adds some better value over an Amazon or, or Walmart or Target or wherever. Yeah, I mean, Shopify I think it could do that too with all the merchants that they have at, you know, Shopify in particular is always trying to add more things on to the to their customers to keep them more loyal and sticky. Why not just create a new e commerce site and, you know, commit to some marketing spend and branding and, and that just is going to drive more people to your sites and your your vent your merchants and you take more of the transaction so that's everybody wins yeah so, so like they they position themselves as being like the anti-amazon right which is control your brand um and you know uh control your brand get off amazon in a sense so you know some of the brands that they highlight typically are the ones that have stayed off amazon for their own reasons so i think from um you know uh an identity standpoint uh that doesn't match up per se. And then, you know, you have to think about, can they spend more aggregate marketing dollars to attract everyone to a single site versus the underlying merchants fighting it out, duking it out in the, in the local markets and stuff, uh, trying to drive traffic, like in aggregate, I wonder which uh, marketing budget is actually uh, better. And, you know, like why there's already Amazon. So 
what are they going to do incremental? Like it's probably, if they did anything better, it'd be incremental um, versus, you know, I could probably order something as we're talking right now and get right. uh, Amazon to my doorstep. Uh, and then the others are doing it as well. It's like, you know, you can get same day with Target and some of these other stuff today. So I think that would just be an uphill battle to climb and a lot of wasted marketing dollars yeah. um, and just be the tools to get all of these brands to succeed and get them early. So when they're big, you know, they become the next Nike and Nike's obviously an exaggeration, but they become big enough to matter. I think Bombas, they always name Bombas and all of their stuff. And who's the next Bombas? And if you, if you, if you plant all these seeds, eventually you start to have these big merchants using your platform. Uh, and it's kind of this bottoms up approach. Um, and, and they've done a wonderful job. I mean, they've just crushed it with that. And shop pay is interesting. I mean, it's like right there top of the app store, which shows you, uh, you know, they're, that's like the ecosystem that that's pretty cool. You go on a website that's powered by Shopify, you know, because customers happy because you don't have to type in anything. Um, and it's just easy uh, for that. So, I mean, yeah, you never know when, you know, the fulfillment stuff they're, they're, they've been trying to do. There's some angle there, you know, I don't know if they ever just try to stitch it together versus just be a service. Right. Um, so they got a lot of initiatives over there. That's for sure. Yeah. How about you at one time, I think you own PayPal too, right? You don't own that one now, do you? No, we don't own it now. I mean, it's at these levels that are interesting for sure. Um, it's amazing how many companies, how many really per perceived at least strong brands have literally collapsed. I'll put Netflix in that category too. I mean, there's, there's a lot of companies that have just absolutely given up years and years worth of returns. Yeah, and, I don't get it. PayPal intrigues me, but it, 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 it does seem like there's a, you know, they lost their CFO. He went to Walmart. They've, they kind of let go of their kind of innovation team or something, which, you know, it just makes you start wondering a lot of things. So, I mean, any, I guess let's, let's not even focus on PayPal as much as what I'd love to do in the time left that we have is one, I'd love to hear you talk about what you're super excited about. I mean, so much dislocation and resetting evaluations and market caps has just come down. So if there's anything that really, really excites you, given the the dislocation and the price action that's happened, and then let's talk about, you know, some dumpster fires or what are there things that you're looking at? You're just like, holy crap. Like if three years ago, if you would have told me that company would have gotten to that level, I would have said, you're completely out of your mind. It's never, <laughs> well, we own some. I'm seeing a lot of that, <laughs> frankly, you know? So yeah. Go with the, the passion stuff. I mean, is there anything that just you're super excited about that you may own or may not own that, that you're starting to think, okay, this is, this is, this is enough. Yeah. So, I mean, like conceptually, like the automation space, right. Just you can, you can take that along, you know, hardware all the way to software. Right. So like you have a company like OmniCell, which you've heard us talk about OmniCell in the past, not a household name by any stretch, but it is a big, powerful company. Uh, that is automating medications inside hospitals, medication management, right? So like, broadly speaking, automation for us um, is, a, is a massive category, specifically in an environment like today, because I think, you know, inflation, both on the, from the consumer side in terms of buying, um, and then also from the wage side, you know, it's, it's really a force function for thinking about how do you automate things, um, and there's a lot of cool tools out there, some being built inside of tools. So like, if you think of, um, uh, think of like a, a simple tool that everyone uses in software for Calendly, right? All, uh, which is the calendar scheduling app, right? Where you 
You can have it on your website. People can book it and then send to Zoom all the automated. Historically, you'd have administration, individual inside your company or external doing that. Um, I think that's just one small example of it. And what that ultimately does, again, is all this stuff is fairly deflationary. Again, I'm, I'm bringing up inflation, deflation just because of the environment. But I think this is a forcing function for automation. So companies that we track, not own, uh, UiPath. Um, is pretty incredible and interesting. Again, I talked about a uh, healthcare company, the medication management company, OmniCell, which we do own for disclosure purposes. Um, uh, and, you know, I think that's an area that is, is, is pretty interesting. Uh, freelancing and remote work, whether it's the Upworks or Fivers, Fivers we're owners of, um, very interesting space to say the least. I think, again, um, it goes back to the same thing I just said. This is an environment where wage pressures are rising the need for skilled labor is increasing, but that cost of skilled labor is increasing at the same, the same rate. And what does that mean? That means either you go to uh, pools of, of skills where it's kind of like pay as you, the project or you automate uh, other things. Well, automate, you're not automating skills per se. Um, you're automating more redundant tasks that you don't want to do. Um, and the flip side of that, again, is, is finding... Uh, pools of skilled labor. Uh, and I think if you think about four years ago, the idea of working from home, broadly speaking, or hybrid or whatever you want to call it, um, wasn't likely to exist in a broad sense. And what you've seen is management teams, executives become accustomed to not tracking every single thing that their employees are doing, uh, gaining trust. There's this trust relationship or not which is uh, what's sending them outside of these organizations. Um, and ultimately, you know, you put this all in a bow. I think that's a, the, the flip side of, you know, what's happening today where this environment is unlocking automation, is unlocking the need for skilled kind of project-based talent. Uh, and there's different platforms out there, private, public, uh, that are fascinating and interesting that we think um, have, call it a decade, but let's, let's just look at three to five years. Um, of opportunity. And then from a valuation perspective, I don't think any of the ones I just named are, are expensive at all um, and well, well capitalized and uh, two of them are generating cash. So. And I, I loosely follow Fiverr, but it doesn't seem like the fundamentals have deteriorated anywhere close to the stock price. I, I mean, am I missing something again? I don't follow it on a ton. It's, it's, it's in the brands index. And it's you know serving a purpose, but um, and I see it on the screener and how it ranks versus the other two hundred. But I haven't followed it that closely. I mean, has that industry really struggled, uh, or is it just you know it's a smaller name and like yeah, small cap index is just getting crushed and you know it's maybe had a higher valuation at the top and it's just gotten sucked into that you know that vortex of higher valuation. Send it down. Send it down. <laughs> Set it down. Yeah, no, it definitely went down the elevator. Um, and it was definitely at a high valuation. So we, we were tracking it a long time ago. Um, and when it was at its peak levels, um, we weren't investors at all at that point in time. Um, and, you know, we wanted the, the valuation to come down. And sure enough, it did. It's still down from obviously where we've, we've, we've purchased it. But at the same time, the fundamentals of that business are incredibly strong. And going back to that, what I said before is, you know, I think one, uh, they're in a strategic place where I think the world is headed. That's number one. 
you know, you may have these, like a pause here or there in terms of uh, the environment where uh, you have a war and, and stuff like that. Um, they have 4 million uh, uh, active buyers on the platform. The, the, the quality of those, those, those buying relationships are increasing, which is spend per buyer. You have uh, a business product that they launch, and that's becoming close to 10% of, of the business today, which is much more stable, reoccurring type of businesses. Um, they just launched Together, which is this big, um, you know, ag there's agencies like advertising agencies and creator agencies out there. And a lot of them don't want to work on the same projects all the time and the same companies inside of them. And they want to be more independent. So what they're doing is putting literally best in class um, uh, 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 artists and creators um, that are being connected to buyers. I think the minimum contract is $100,000 projects. Um, so this is, it's called Together with two R's, Fiverr, two R's. Uh, so they, it's, it's an offshoot because Fiverr couldn't hold a $100,000 contract as a brand. Um, but together can, and they've done a lot of marketing here in the last, uh, three weeks since they've launched it. Um, and again, it goes back to that concept of investing when others are potentially, you know, stepping back. So I think it's a really important, uh, distinction between those two. And, and again, the business is, is doing just fine. It's doing great. Um, you, you, if you have a five-year time horizon, then, um, there's really nothing to see here. Is this, is this a little bit like Uber Lyft where, somebody is on Fiverr, but they're also on a bunch of other sites looking for work, you know, posting work too, or, or do, do people tend to go on Fiverr and, and that's kind of the only place they are, or maybe they're on Upwork too or whatever. Yeah. So there's shared stuff, obviously. It, I would, I would uh, say it's more like an Etsy than it is a, okay. an Uber and Lyft, right? Where, you know, when you're buying something from somebody, you know, when you, when you order an Uber or Lyft, you know, at, at the end of the day, like as long as the person's not a one star, I don't, I don't think anyone really checks the stars because you assume everyone's like can drive you somewhere. Um, right. And so it doesn't really matter if you're Uber or Lyft, right? Um, but when you're talking about, hey, make like edit my podcast episode for me, like you care. And for you to succeed on these platforms, you have to continuously perform, right? They have uh, milestones on the platform, which is, you know, perform over a 60 day window and and generate this amount of stuff. And then once you actually start ranking high, more business comes to you. Uber, if you're in the right zip code and someone uh, hits the button, you get business. It has nothing to do with your ranking. Um, so there's <clears throat> plenty of incentives to stick with the platform once you started it. You know, you can still go to the other platforms and, and try to get work that way as well. But again, I, I think it's more like the analogy is more uh, Etsy. And they, they, they talk a lot uh, in terms of business in terms of ads and some other stuff that they're working on. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know when, I mean, I'm, I'm sit here with my little basket of stocks that have just gotten destroyed and, yeah. and the asymmetry from an upside to downside, if you have a couple of years time frame at this point is heavily skewed in your favor. You know, I'm just yeah. waiting, I'm just waiting to deploy because I, I'm going to cut, I'm going to, you know, trim some Home Depot, trim some Lowe's, trim some the, you know, just to build up an allocation to, you know, loosely what we call the dumpster fires, which is just the stuff that has absolutely gotten annihilated, where you're just like, okay, this is absurd how much damage has been done relative to the importance of the business, the competitive nature of that company versus their peer groups. So I, I'm waiting. I don't know when, you know, if the market is, a, is anticipatory, maybe I should start building that basket in tranches and just try stop trying to time it, but we'll, we'll, we'll see. 
And, and lastly, any anything that's just you know gotten annihilated that that you're just like you know oh, that I'm licking my chops on, on that one a little bit like your dumpster fire you know kind of watch list if you will any any themes any businesses or anything that you're you've researched or you're doing research on maybe you've owned it because you're you're pretty good at owning something having a great ride capitalizing on the valuation and then moving on and then just you know it, it's on your watch list if that thing ever pulls back to x you know i'm i'm intrigued because i already know the business so any, anything in that area yeah i mean like the list is pretty long at this point yeah exactly. <laughs> yes it is <laughs> the, the, list is, the list is pretty long at this point and uh so there's a lot right so it's, it's all about what you just said with like your home depots and stuff it's you know what's happened inside your portfolio that you you like right and i named some names already in terms of those uh that, are, that have been hit pretty hard already um and you know i think what we've been trying to do as well is similar tactics where you know what's held up in the portfolio in some cases we had one that was up uh, for the year for uh, like a moment in time and we use that as as a way to rotate into all the stuff that's getting hit the hardest you know in this environment we want to own the things we know best that are hit hard where valuations uh, are are like dirt cheap um, and kind of stay away from the stuff that's on the fringes you know in terms of uh, uh, where they are in terms of our understanding of how the economics work. So we'll probably, we probably go back to the well of, of things that we've owned in the past. Um, you know, company, you name Shopify that's on that list for sure. Uh, we don't own it. Um, you know, Wix, which we're investors in now, uh, as well. Um, and that one's gotten hit hard. So there's like a laundry list. I mean, you take that whole basket of anything software related and again, not big cap software, mid and small cap software, which these are like pristine businesses, I think that are, you just look in that index, take IGV, take out all the big caps and uh, go through those. I think for a long time, we, as a, as a firm, loved the businesses, hated the valuations and stayed a, away from a lot of this stuff. Um, and only until, you know, the last six months have we been moving into these stuff. Uh, and, you know, and that that's really what we've been doing. I mean, take a, a company like Zoom, right? Which is a, a company that we think is like super high quality. Um, and you know, is performing really well. I mean, they talked literally like two and a half weeks ago, three weeks ago, enterprise business growing 30 plus percent, um, uh, $6 billion of cash on their balance sheet, essentially no debt, you know, 30, 40%, uh, uh, cash flow margins. I mean, this isn't Slack, right? Slack was burning cash, uh, going up against monsters, having a market against them, still burning cash. Uh, and that was like the analogy I saw the other day. There's like, I get it. I get the, that connection uh, in terms of like a, a collaboration tool going up against the big uh, monsters. And there's some of that in the fringes that I think uh, is important to keep your eye on. But, uh, you know, markets can be a, a duopoly. It doesn't have to be a, a, a single monopoly, I guess, uh, as some make it to be. And, you know, Slack wasn't inside of every enterprise, but Zoom is for the most part. Um, in some form or fashion. And, you know, they're expanding their product portfolio. So I think uh, that's what we needed to see. You know, it wasn't really valuation as much as it was, can they move away from the meeting? And, you know, we're on Zoom right now. Why? Because, you know, I think uh, it's a, it works. Um, I'll be honest. I haven't been on a, a Teams call. I haven't been on one in a, a long time. Um, maybe one. use Teams. Right. So internally you're using Teams. Sales teams are using Zoom. Um, and people, you know, that can be the separation. Uh, and then you have phone, right. And zoom phone and, 
Zoom webinar and webcast and events and, and all these other things that they continue to announce. So when you're generating that much cash, you have that much cash, uh, they're about to hopefully uh, here go on a serial acquisition spree. Um, and they have a billion dollar or $2 billion buyback. So, you know, um, in place. Eventually so. it'll matter. I mean, Zoom is definitely in that, in that list. And I, I don't know if you follow Qualtrics. It's yeah. a really interesting company and, you know, from a brand perspective and do what they do with brands. And I posted on Twitter one day when I saw the, the list, you know, it's kind of their annual survey of, of, of companies and where they think they're going to spend their time and their money. And, you know, if we're going into a slowdown and companies are doing lots of cost cutting and rationalizing employees, et cetera, et cetera, travel was the one thing that, you know, that's, that's one thing that they're going to cut. Like when Zoom's here, you can cut your travel budget pretty easily and just do your Zoom meetings again. We're all used to doing Zoom. So Zoom is one of those things that's, that's super intriguing and, and it, it's going to matter at some point. Sure. Frankly, no, for I'm, sure. I'm surprised it hasn't mattered already because the numbers have been pretty good. And, you know, you get a pop out of a quarter and then they sell it right off because nobody wants anything related to tech or high beta or higher valuation. But it's not even it's not even that expensive at this point. No, nah, if, oh. you, if you do enterprise value to cash flow, it's cheap. Right. And it's like, I mean, unless you think this thing is going to be a structural decliner, um, then, then that should be the worry, but that should be for any company. But if you, if you even think it's going to be remotely, uh, uh, stable and strong, like, again, it goes back to what you said. There's a lot of, uh, companies that have been hit really, really hard. And this was one we've been eyeing since, you know, the, the, the heydays of, uh, zoom 350% growth. And we were getting asked, why don't you own zoom? Why don't you own zoom? Uh, and we're like, well, it's a single product and you know, it's a hundred and something billion dollar valuation. And hey, this is the revenue you're doing. This is the revenue they would have to do and the margin they would have to do to get to this valuation. That's going to take like 10 years of X percent growth. Um, I'm not betting on that. And, um, you know, at some point it got to a point where valuation was attractive plus, uh, the product expansion. And that was the more the key point, which is, you know, in order to grow and be successful over decades, you need to continue to improve your product, grow into new markets. You know, uh, Home Depot was that prime example uh, of growing into new markets regionally. Uh, and, you know, Amazon was a, a book company. So you better, if you, if you think a company is going to be a one-way highway, then um, that's uh, not the best way to, to find kind of longer-term opportunities. Well, speaking of automation, I, I look forward to when they can, Amazon can finally roll out the that technology because every time I wait in line, at the uh, at the grocery <laughs> store or anywhere, you're just like the technology just needs to be rolled out. I mean, I I guess it's just much more difficult to 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 make really work at scale without having too many errors. But at some point, we're going to have that technology. It's going to be wonderful, and then they're going to license that technology. Have you ever owned Amazon? By the way, I think we have a couple minutes left, but um, I have. Yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. So so I heard I heard it. I uh, owned it uh, a while ago. Uh, pre-Avery. So oh, okay. it was, uh, de yeah, it was definitely pre-Avery. Um, again, I, I think the, the thing there is you had to bet on AWS. So anyone betting on the, the commerce business for the last decade, um, I think uh, is lucked out by the, uh, the, the AWS business <laughs> and not probably not even understanding what it was. Um, and you know, that's the, that, that, that happens sometimes, but, um, you know, there's other companies out there, you know, Google, like, so in, in March of 2020, we know we missed the AWS boom, right. In terms of, uh, capturing the, like the, the, uh, 
the, the seven years ago, call it uh, eight years ago when AWS was getting strong. And, you know, you look at Azure from Microsoft and then you look at Google and you're like, okay, well, does Google have a chance here with AWS? I mean, uh, Google cloud. And that was your opportunity to, to buy uh, AWS 10 years ago, but in Google's format, uh, not that they're going to compete toe to toe with them, but they will be a solid number three in the space and in a growing market. And, you know, you were paying what, 10 times, nine times for Google back in uh, March, April of 2020. Uh, we closed our eyes and clicked buy. Um, and that was, I mean, it feels s- similar to these moments, um, but that's like, a, you know, a very like analogy, like the analogy is, is pretty close to, a, to AWS and Amazon where you're investing in search, but Google Cloud was the really been driver force over the last year and a half. So, well, I'll take Google um, search over Amazon retail from a business fundamental for sure. operating metrics perspective. Somebody, some, someday somebody's going to write the book about, okay, the story would have been very different for Amazon, for Amazon shareholders, for Jeff Bezos, if they would have just stayed in their lane. Like it probably wouldn't be the, the, the brand that we know, the, the stock that we know, save X the last 18 months, but I do feel like they're, they're set up for a decent, you know, catch up, even if it's a little more asset heavy these days than I would like. But uh, that, that story would be very different were it not for, for AWS and maybe the ad business too, which is obviously super strong. Yeah. It's on fire right now. I mean, that's becoming one of the, uh, the main ad pillars, but it's for those that are, are directly, uh, you know, it's a direct advertising on platform. So, but it, their platform is so big that it matters. <laughs> it does. It does. Well, listen, man, I could, I could talk to you for, you know, for all day, but we both have to get back to, to our uh, other day jobs. Um, always super fun to talk stocks, macro. All I can say is that uh, at some point fundamentals will matter again. And, <laughs> and we are certainly setting up for some very big asymmetric opportunities I just don't, it's above my pay grade to know when it will matter and when it will start. I'm just, you know, I urge everybody to just get your list ready because there's going to be an aha moment, probably when you feel so awful about markets that you have to close your eyes and push the buy button. I don't know when that is, but, but the, the, the opportunities are going to be pretty, pretty, pretty stellar. So we, maybe the next one will, maybe the next one, let's endeavor to actually have called the bottom yeah. Talk next week. Asymmetry, whenever that is. And I hope to God it's not six to 12 months from now. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, I don't think so. So yeah, hopefully we're talking much sooner than that. Absolutely. All right, buddy. Well, it was, it was great to talk to you. Thanks again for your time and your wisdom. And uh, we'll chat with you later. Have a good rest of your summer too. Awesome, Eric. Good See stuff. You. See you, Sean. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Mega Brands, everybody. I'm your host, Eric Clark. For more information on this podcast and to learn more about the brand relevancy scoring system we use, be sure to check out the website at globalbrandsmatter.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for the market newsletter and check out my latest thoughts on our favorite portfolio brands in the Dynamic Brands section. If you have any questions or want to learn more about the Dynamic Brands approach, send me a message on the contact tab. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Have a great day.